Facebook engineering is unique. Software is built at Facebook in a way that is distinctly different than any other company. In our series of shows about Facebook engineering, we've mostly covered the positive side of Facebook's practices. In today's show, we also explore a bit of the downsides. Facebook moves fast. Engineers within the company must move fast. And this can reduce the time spent on formal processes and documentation. A fast pace can lead to a chaotic environment. In this kind of environment, not every employee thrives, and product development can sometimes suffer. But there are clear benefits to moving fast, and many software organizations could benefit from moving faster. Pete Hunt was an engineer with Facebook who worked on Facebook Video, Instagram, and React, and Nick Schrock worked on core infrastructure at Facebook. He was also the co-creator of GraphQL. Pete and Nick helped create the Facebook culture, and they're aware of the best and worst aspects of it. They join the show to reflect on their time at Facebook and the downsides of moving fast, as well as the upsides. If you're building a software project, post it on Find Collabs. Find Collabs is the company I'm working on. It's a place to find collaborators for your software projects. We integrate with GitHub and make it easy for you to collaborate with others on your open source projects and find people to work with who have shared interests so that you can actually build software with other people rather than building your software by yourself. Find Collabs is not only for open source software, it's also a great place to collaborate with other people on low code or no code projects, or find a side project if you're a product manager or somebody who doesn't like to write code. Check it out at findcollabs.com. Pete Hunt and Nick Schrock. Guys, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yes. We've been doing this series about Facebook engineering, and much of the series has focused on the benefits of the Facebook engineering culture. So I'd like to have this conversation highlight some of the downsides or the risks or the costs of the Facebook engineering culture. What are the downsides of moving as fast as Facebook did in the years when you guys were there? That's a really good question. The first one that comes to mind is that when an engineer is dropped into an environment that moves that quickly, it's actually pretty overwhelming in terms of like being able to onboard that quickly. I remember the documentation being pretty sparse because the documentation would rapidly fall out of date. And so a lot of times um, engineers would have to spelunk through the, the git blame or the fabricator history or the comments on code review in order to understand like what was going on and what decisions were being made. And so for a lot of engineers, that's not something that they're used to doing. They're used to going and reading the design document associated with whatever system they're working on. And what I found when I was there anyway was there wasn't a lot of that stuff. Um, so it required a lot of work. It was something that wasn't common for engineers to come in equipped to do. Yeah. So I think the difference or the downside is actually on a different dimension is actually more subtle and a little counterintuitive insofar that I think someone coming at this for first blush would be, there's an obvious trade-off between speed and quality. 
I actually don't think that's true because by being able to move quickly and having fast feedback loops, you can actually correct mistakes quickly and actually that fast iteration cycle can actually lead to higher quality. However, I think the true downside is short-termism sometimes where you're making decisions where velocity and speed of iteration are your primary input into decision-making, and that can get you to sort of a, a local maxima, if you will, where you've made a strategic error by going in a certain direction. I'm sure we'll talk about some of those. I think the most notable one was the shift to HTML5 for mobile. But because you're focused more on short to medium term iteration speed or velocity, you can kind of make higher level decisions and move quickly to a point where you've done enormous damage to yourself and kind of gotten into a, like boxed yourself kind of into a pretty bad spot and move there very quickly. We've covered the HTML5 story in some detail. Could you both give another anecdote that perhaps exemplifies a time when you remember at Facebook where maybe things, you know, too much technical debt accumulated or the processes that make Facebook Facebook in a good way backfired in a way that made you perhaps question the validity of some of these practices. One in particular comes to mind. There was this project that was released um, a number of years ago called Facebook Home, which was, it was like, it ended up being a lock screen for Android, but it was also paired with like a Facebook branded phone from HTC. And there was a ton of work to do a project much more ambitious than that leading up to that project. And Facebook's approach to that type of mobile development, I mean, you know, kind of like really digging into the OS and building something that hadn't been built before, was to effectively take the playbook for the PHP code base and apply it to like lower level systems development on a mobile device in a market that hadn't been proven yet. And you just, the company just couldn't figure out a way to rapidly iterate itself to a high quality product. And that product that ended up launching was like multiple years late to market. And in my view, kind of missed the, the market. And that's one of the reasons why it wasn't successful. And the reason why it was so slow to market was just because the company, and this is a common thing that like lots of com- like startups and big companies do, they take their like founding myth or the one thing that really works and they say, this is what makes us special. Like we can go and apply this to this other problem space. And sometimes it works. And in this case, it, it really backfired and didn't work at all. Yeah, I guess my example is much more personal insofar as something that I personally participated in. So the story of the bulk of my career is kind of the stack that led up to GraphQL, then GraphQL, and then moving on to our native mobile clients. The first native mobile, meaning that building software for our native mobile clients, specifically the GraphQL SDK. We initially moved to iOS, and I was able to pair and team up with a couple really talented iOS engineers and really have very significant positive impact on that code base and architecture very quickly. And it really set us up for success on that platform for years. And then I sort of, I, I think I got a little too big for my britches and moved on to the Android code base and kind of executed the same playbook and was really focused on moving quickly and kind of taking the architecture that had been laid down there as given, and then moving quickly within that architecture without examining first principles. 
and ended up making some fairly fundamental mistakes in the design of that architecture that echoed for years. So looking back on it, I should have approached that with more humility and long-term planning and understood the technical constraints of that platform at a deeper level before just kind of charging ahead and delivering near-term to medium-term value. One way we can look at Facebook is as its engineering culture relative to other technology companies. So we've had some conversations about how Facebook contrasts with the culture of innovation at Apple, the culture at Google, other companies. How does innovation at Facebook occur, and what are the ways in which other companies perhaps have merits in their innovation processes that Facebook does not have? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and I think it's important to separate what we're doing with how we're doing it. And so Facebook, in the what we're doing category, this is like what product bets are we making, what sorts of markets are we going into, what features are we prioritizing, that sort of thing. That's pretty top-down. In a similar way that Apple is, from what I know, is, is pretty top-down. There's a couple of visionary product leaders at the top, they are very, very assertive in making sure that the company is executing against that vision with the right prioritization. And if you look at the, the success of Facebook and the success of Apple, that seems to work pretty well. I would contrast that with what I know about, about Google, where Google has done a very good job of creating an innovation machine where it's not reliant on a couple of key people that are like hyper-empowered to do the, to do the, the innovating. They've really created a, a process and a machine that allows individual lower-level teams and product groups to go and innovate on their own. Like, I don't think you have Larry and Sergey weighing in too much on Gmail, for example, right? Whereas at Facebook, it seemed like Zuck was approving and, and driving the majority of stuff that, that we would do. There are two different approaches. Like I think the advantage of those kind of couple of visionaries at the top handing it down is that it's super organized. Like you know exactly what is the top priority, what you should do. There's not a lot of bureaucracy around it because it's just kind of, because we already know what to do and it's, it's really just about how do we do it. And from at Facebook anyway, the how do you do it was very laissez-faire which I think was one of the things that made it a great engineering culture. And that works really well for you know Apple and Facebook, but it is dependent on a couple of key people. And I think that Google is probably a more resilient organization in that respect because of the way that they've built that machine. Yeah, the one thing I'll add to that is that Facebook has been able to add, to use the Apple parlance, directly responsible individuals, DRIs, for huge swaths of their product line via an acquisition strategy. You know, and this is mostly, to be clear, you know, Pete and I were both engineers and engineering leaders, and we're not involved in the, the strategic command of the secret high council of products. So we're more viewing the after effects of this. But by acquiring independent brands, such as Instagram, such as WhatsApp, such as Oculus, and having that separate brand, having very strong, empowered leaders on top of that. Like the fact that the, we were able to in, retain the Instagram founders for six years 
after a billion dollar acquisition is unbelievable, actually. And, you know, I think that that is the way that Facebook, the company, has started to kind of, you know, scale product innovation. innovation you know. So one thing I'm, I'm trying to reconcile is what you guys just said, the, the, the top-down product direction with a sense I've gotten from other interviews that Facebook has a bottoms-up, high-trust, collaborative culture where any engineer can come into Facebook and say, I'm going to be an influencer engineer, I'm going to build up credibility, and then I'm going to start something cool within Facebook, and it's going to take off because I'm going to marshal the resources within it. Maybe this is a product of, you know, I'm thinking about Facebook in different timelines, like maybe the early Facebook, there was more bottoms up, and then now it's more of a top-down organization. But could you help me reconcile those two understandings of the Facebook innovation culture? Sure. It goes back to the Pete's premise and preface, which is separating the what from the how, meaning that there's top-down context setting. And context setting means what's the product strategy. So it's not like you can come straight out of boot camp and then you know, decide we're going to pivot the company, right? There's we're a doing very, dating. What? We're doing dating. We're doing dating, right? I graduated from boot camp and you know, we're doing a dating app. That's not how this works. What you can do if you're an ambitious engineer, and this is all within certain parameters as you build up trust and reputation, is within the context of that overall company strategy, you have enormous latitude as to the technical artifacts that you can produce that execute on that strategy. And within that dimension, there's tons of innovation, right? So, you know, let's take an example of a previous interview of like Keith Adams, which HHVM. What virtual machine executed PHP? had nothing to do with product strategy, right? Completely different layer of the stack. HHVM was extraordinarily innovative on a couple dimensions. But what there was a mandate of is that we want to execute on product strategy X, Y, and Z. We want to do so while not bankrupting the company. And that was pretty much it. And that is the context setting that allowed all these various runtimes to execute. Yeah, and I think that that strong, assertive, like top-down, you know, it was, it was, by the way, it could be very stressful, right? Like the highest priority projects would get like weekly Zuck reviews, um, if not twice a week. Um, so you definitely felt this pressure to move fast um, and execute on stuff, stuff very quickly and at high quality. And if you look at something like React, right? React, like creating a JavaScript framework is like the classic example of like an engineer procrastinating on their real work to do, right? Like, I, I don't know, at least in my experience, I feel, like, <laughs> I feel like that's a good example. But the reason why React actually happened was because there was a guy working on the ads front end. We had this, the, the, most, the most hardcore front end user, or the most hardcore user interface in the whole product in 2010, 2011 was the flow to create ads on the platform. Obviously, like as leading up to the IPO, like getting that thing right was super important. That team had a lot of pressure, and like delivering new features on that thing got like slower and slower. The the more complex it got, and so 
there was very, very strong top-down pressure on this thing to behave a certain way, and engineering and the people figuring out how to do it said, listen, we have to make this investment in some uh, front-end infrastructure to really accelerate this work. And that wasn't like they sat down in a meeting and like, like created a JS framework initiative. It was like one, one engineer, Jordan Walk, nights and weekends kind of hacking on this idea that he then kind of was able to successfully sell t- to the organization as, as what we should actually do. And like the only reason why that happened was because Jordan was working on something that was t- handed down top down really internalized how important it was and was able to tie that work up to those really, really clear goals that the company had. I don't know, is that a fair assessment of of how React uh, ended up happening? Yeah, and I just love the JS framework is procrastination line uh, that resonates. So speaking of open source, Facebook's open source history is distinct from how open source has manifested other companies. Why did Facebook's open source culture end up the way that it did? I think Nick's got some great perspective (laughs) on the open source strategy of the company. But I I can start framing it up that from my perspective, some Facebook open source, I I think the vast majority, if not everything that Facebook open sources is of a high quality. I think everything is like technically pretty excellent. But it's very clear that some projects that Facebook has open sourced have become wildly successful. React, GraphQL, uh, hip hop, when it was originally open source, was like highly successful as well. Um, And then there have been some projects that have been colossal failures. Like uh, the first release of Relay, for example, was very technically excellent, very good for Facebook, but like nobody could figure out how to use this thing. And then there were some projects that were released, then were like, kind of failures and then they they really iterated on it got it got it back to to healthy like jest is a is a good one so there's oh yeah and then there's stuff like flow which was you know really really popular and then kind of tapered off so the point i'm trying to make here is that facebook's projects are actually all over the map and the reason for that i think is because at least based on my own experience with react it's driven by individuals. And if the individuals that want to do this thing and get this thing open source, if they value documentation, if they understand where the community is and they can make the internal Facebook thing meet the community where they are, then then it'll be successful. But if it's not, or if there's just an impedance mismatch between the two, then it it won't. Yeah, as Pete alluded to, I have many thoughts on this subject, but, and it's probably worthy of an entire episode with lots of different people because I think it's not just a Facebook issue but an industry-wide issue. And that is precisely what is a relationship between venture-backed and profit-making enterprises that produce infrastructure for their own business requirements and then what is the incentive alignment with their projects that get open source, typically driven by the individual engineers who are responsible and participating in for building those open source projects. So that's kind of, I think, the general industry-wide problem statement that I still don't think there's a crisp articulation of. Now, with the Facebook open source strategy, first of all, like there is no strategy. There is a general feeling, I would say, from the top that it's just kind of the right thing to do, and there's a pay-it-back 
sort of mentality in terms of, listen, we know the fundamentals of this business were built on an open source stack, Linux, the LAMP stack initially, right? So there's a kind of the notion that it's like the right thing to do. And then there's kind of this random walk aspect, ironically, like Jordan walk, where engineers just kind of have done it. And then the breakout successes, in particular React, which is a sui generis rocket ship project, you know? If like, like GraphQL is kind of a baby rocket and React is like the BFR, if you know what that means. And Shrep, the, the CTO, Mike Shrepfer, who's always very supportive of these projects, he once said to me, he was like, listen, we're like launching probes of drones into low orbit that are shooting lasers at each other. And the only thing anyone wants to talk to me about outside the company is a goddamn JavaScript framework. <laughs> so kind of a, there's like this post hoc justification for the investment that is kind of in terms of reputational brand aspects and for recruiting. So there's that aspect. But, you know, in reality, beyond this kind of difficult to measure sort of engineer NPS score, net promoter score, I'm just appropriating marketing lingo for this, you, it is very difficult to tie the business metrics of Facebook to the underlying health of its open source projects. Like connecting those dots is at best through this intermediate goal. And I think that the, the perfect example of that is the Flow project that you mentioned, that Pete mentioned. So let's take this in particular. Why is Flow not very popular? It's not very popular because there's a competing project called TypeScript out of Microsoft that Microsoft has a business proposition for supporting. So TypeScript is a developer tool. Microsoft is a developer tools company. They have assigned senior top talent to that project. The leader of that project is Anders Heilsberg, who might be like, I don't know if he's the best in, you know, what, at that point, he's one of the, in a rare echelon of one of the best language designers in the world. And someone I personally look up to. And you know, they have massive investment around both VS Code and TypeScript and this huge ecosystem. So even if there's like some particular aspects of the flow type system, which are better, and like I think there are actually, but that doesn't, it doesn't matter because the ecosystem around TypeScript is so strong. So I don't know what the end result of this you know, little soliloquy is, but I think it's like, it's not a Facebook issue. I think it's an industry-wide issue and they're still figuring it out. And everyone's figuring out because it's like, hey, if our engineers are distracted with maintaining this open source community and serving, you know, customers of their stuff or even our competitors, like, why are we doing this? Why aren't we focusing them on something that can clearly be tied to the business objectives of the organization? So I think that's more about setting context for what the issues are rather than proposing any sort of coherent philosophy around it. One thing I, I want to add, though, which is it's disorganized. Like, there's a certain set of check boxes that you have to check before you, the open source team will let you release something. Like, you have to have somebody who is responsible for maintaining some SLA on pull requests and, you know, a plan for making sure the changes get synced out and all that stuff that, like, being a good open source steward requires. But it is, like, basically 
like chaos. It's like some projects randomly get like shot out of the Facebook uh, code base and some don't, just based kind of on who is uh, who is involved and what they're working on. And I think that if we want to look at, we could look at Facebook through this lens where a lot of people would come in and say it's pretty disorganized, actually. They would look at, on one side of the coin, we can say, yeah, there's a lot of, like with respect to how we do it, there is a lot of freedom for engineers to figure out the best way to to do it. There's not a lot of like mandates for for how to work. But on the other side of that coin, some people would call that disorganized. And some people would call that, would criticize that and say, hey, listen, the people with the, the loudest voices are making the decisions implicitly rather than explicitly. Um, so I think if we're thinking about what are some things that Facebook might not do well is you, you might ask yourself, are those decisions that are being made the right decisions or not? And this is just somewhat related, but I feel morally compelled to discuss this issue, which is to build on Pete's point that it's a little chaotic and there's not like some super coherent overall strategy. One thing that the lack of clarity around this causes a lot of confusion about licensing and patent issues, where when we open source something, there's often a lot of theorizing that these open source technologies are somehow some long-term plan to do like an intellectual property power grab in the industry and so on and so forth, which can often cause some like pretty hostile behavior from people who object to some of the licensing aspects. Or WordPress story. Right. So I would just, this is just purely a request to those who care deeply about this issue, and I understand it, that you do, is please understand what's actually going on here, which is you got some engineers within Facebook who are trying to do their best, and they're really passionate about this stuff, and they're doing what their own internal institutional cleavages here. And then when you are assaulted for this externally, it's like psychologically very confusing as to what's going on. Cause it's like, hey, I'm just trying to produce some tech. And like, you know, the leaders and the legal counsel involved are just like naturally conservative in terms of not exposing the company to intellectual property nuisance issues, for example. And there is no conspiracy. The conspiracy does not exist. As the person who is effectively kind of primarily responsible for convincing the right people to open source GraphQL, there was like no conspiracy. We just thought it was the right thing to do. So please approach those subjects with uh, empathy and understanding. Uh, Ah. Well, I mean, that's, yeah, that's kind of the story of Facebook getting criticized recently that, you know, you calcified it pretty well. I mean, the open source issues with WordPress was like a drop in the bucket, but like you can if you compare that to how Facebook has been criticized more recently, I think it's a lot of what you said maps onto that as well. Okay, so coming back to the disorganization thing, I think the people who the disorganization might hurt the most are people who are either new to Facebook or struggling to figure out their place at Facebook. And we had this interesting conversation that was regarding... uh, the Tom Okino interview, and because I was I was very impressed with Tom in terms of how he he spoke about management, and the thing that I was I was curious about was like, can you scale engineers being satisfied with their work? And you know when I think about the chaos, uh, the quote unquote chaos of Facebook's engineering environment, I kind of contrast it with 
the companies that I worked at when I was uh, a software engineer. Like I, I, I worked at uh, I worked at eBay, I worked at Amazon, uh, I worked at a couple other companies. In all of these jobs, my work was very prescribed to me. It was it was laid out in in clear terms, and that actually worked very well for my coworkers. It did not work well for me. I did like I just I wanted freedom. Like it was and it wasn't that I didn't want to do my job. I was working like longer hours, but you know, I needed to have an outlet. I needed to have the ability to to explore and to do things that that might have felt chaotic to other people in the organization. So so in that sense the the disorganization kind of appeals to me. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is I feel like engineers should have both the requirements of their job, but they should also have this latitude to explore and to do things that they like within the organization. And my sense that my sense is that Facebook has somehow captured that lightning in a bottle and scaled it. Like I do believe what Tom says that he is able to satisfy the desires of those Facebook engineers who who are seeking some kind of internal validation in terms of the projects that they're doing. So I guess I, I just I don't know. You know, you guys are both managing people at this point, and I'm wondering how you balance and how you think Facebook has successfully scaled the necessity to do kind of boring work with the the joys that can come from exploring the chaos? That is a really interesting question. And I think uh, I actually talked about this with Nick a bit, and I'm going to steal a couple of his talking points. But the first thing that you, you got to understand is that it's really hard to get a job at Facebook. You have to be like really good on a number of dimensions. Like the stereotype about, tech, about interviewing a tech company is that it's just all about writing code. Um, in the interviews and whiteboard coding and algorithms and stuff. And like, yeah, that's a component of it, but there's a lot of screening as well around like, can you architect a system? Do you know when you're actually doing something that's that's the right, do you know when it's time to invest in, in architecture versus just delivering on product features or are you gonna be creating new technical debt? Um, that's that type of thing. And then there's also, you know, mission alignment and being able to communicate and being able to understand what the company's goals are and balance those against the technical objectives too. And uh, so, first of all, the the engineers that that make it into the company, you should be able to have like kind of a mature conversation with them and be like, listen, this is not the most interesting thing in the world, but we need you to work on it for a little while. And they should be able to have the patience and not be like a diva about it. The other thing is that low performers do get fired easily at, at Facebook. So like, you know, I, I forgot what the stat was, but like there's, they definitely performance manage people and, and fire them if they're not doing, doing well. But it's not like you have one bad week or one bad quarter and you instantly get fired. Like there is this notion that like, we wanna find the right place for someone to be successful. And one of the things that really works for Facebook is that the product surface area is huge. And every single one of those products is super scalable or at, at like a really high scale. So you can always kind of like find a new product surface area or feature to put someone on or you scaled up this system. Now there's this other thing that's breaking down. Go go work on that. And I think that like maybe Facebook wouldn't work as well if it the product was boring or like wasn't very broad or it wasn't um, didn't have interesting technical challenges or wasn't growing 
or wasn't growing. Yeah, I don't know, Nick, what do you think about this? I think it's a really complicated subject. It's super context dependent. And so that all being said, I guess I think one thing that helps is how you, there's a certain percentage, you know, I think some of the stuff we're focusing on this section of the conversation is like, there's this like, any engineering organization, there's just stuff that you don't want to do and that needs to be done. And so if the premise is like, okay, you allow the engineers to choose all their own stuff and then magically everything's going to get done, but that's not true. So how do you factor their goals and objectives that satisfy both of these constraints? They get to do directionally what they want to do or what they're passionate about, should I say, that's aligned with the objectives of the company. And how do you make sure that kind of the odds and ends get done? And I think, you know, the, to me, the ideal, the ideal way of accomplishing that is giving an engineer a sense of ownership over a high-level objective. And then in order to achieve that objective, they are responsible for, you know, it's only going to work if they do that, you know, if they spend 20% of their time doing stuff that they might not necessarily want to do. Right. So really imbuing them with a sense of ownership over the end goal of what they're doing. It's like, okay, you're working on this framework. Your job is to make that successful. In order to do that, yes, you get to do the fun stuff of like architecting things on whiteboards and like sitting back and beard stroking or whatever you like to do. But in order to do that, you also have to write documentation. You also have to respond to bug requests. You have to do all that stuff. And then what you want to make sure is that engineers, one of my, uh, Arturo Behar, very successful, very effective manager of engineering ICs, he was like, listen, like, there's going to be some percentage of time that you're doing stuff you don't want to do. The key thing for sustainability is to make sure that N percent is at a sustainable level. So like maybe you spend 80% of your time doing what you like to do, or maybe 60%, 20 things of the things that you tolerate and 20% you don't like to do, right? And like, it's up to you to own your experience so that you can like factor your stuff that makes you accountable to your teammates that you're not offloading all the crap work to them but also like you're at a sustainable level of production and i thought that was very wise and practical advice i, I wanted to add one other thing which was like the career ladder at facebook i think there technically was like a rubric for an e4 to an e5 to an e6 and it probably had all the standard stuff that every other company has, but like largely, Facebook had these posters all over the place that would say things like "focus on impact," and impact was the really the number one thing that anybody cared about. So whether your project was easy to do or was impressive technically or not didn't really matter as much as the impact. And I think what it often comes down to, I found in my experience anyway, is the stuff that people don't want to do tends to have a pretty high impact score if you're asking them to do it. And so if you've got these posters all over the wall, it's say impact, 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 and you recognize high impact, whatever it is, and you have a pretty expansive definition of what impact is, you can generally frame it up in that way. I mean, you can't, you know, if you give someone 100% of the, the bad work for their, you know, multiple quarters, they're probably going to quit. But I think if you, you can incentivize that a little bit by, by talking about impact. Um, and the one other thing that, that came to mind when you were talking, Nick, was, you know, going back to the, like using making a JavaScript framework as an example of like procrastination and beard stroking and stuff like that. Like at Facebook, you would basically get laughed out of a room 
if you proposed some sort of frameworky thing and you had no examples to back it up from like your day-to-day work. Like one of the reasons why there are like a couple of like, there, there's many like Facebook open source projects that are wildly successful. I know that we talked, we just talked about kind of the hit or miss nature, but like there's a lot that are really successful. And one of those reasons is because like anything that would have been architecture astronauted would have like, would be killed instantly. And it's much more like, yeah, I was working on ads for the last year and I found this problem and now we've got React as a solution. Hey, we're building these new iOS and Android apps and like we're going back and forth with the server all the time, so we built this solution. And then when you go and you present that framework to the next team to go and try to get them to use it, they're gonna ask a bunch of questions about, hey, I've got this problem in my day to day, what do I do? And you can point back to evidence. And if you can't do that, like no one's gonna take you seriously. I mean, it's it's almost like uh, starting a company, right? Like if you don't have any customers or case studies, like the customer will be very suspicious of, of the thing that you're trying to sell them. Getting to questions closely related to infrastructure, one subject we've had a number of conversations about is this monorepo, monolithic software architecture. And the tooling and unique processes that Facebook had to build around that. And I guess I'd like to know more about the strains that the monolithic monorepository puts on an organization. What kinds of tooling needs to be built? Why this is so rare to see in the industry relative to the epidemic of the microservices architecture? It is an epidemic. (laughs) I concur, but we won't go into that today. So I think one of the primary reasons that otherwise talented engineers who can be more brilliant, otherwise be very successful at other companies would come into Facebook and then churn out quickly of their own volition is uh, they couldn't deal with this like level of controlled chaos that occurred within the company. And I think the, the controlled chaos, the product Codebase monorepo is a great example of like muddling our way through that and figuring that out. You know, I think you have to like, for example, within the monorepo and within the product codebase, you have to think about ownership in a different way. So one of the reasons why microservices, for example, are super clean in terms of ownership is that there's a process boundary around team organizations. So like bug attribution is easier and like there's a very clear ownership of like we own this part and you own this part. When you're in process with other people's code, when you're in the same code base, it gets way more muddled. And the ownership structure needs to be less like stark dividing lines and more like overlapping curves of responsibility, right? So this is different, I'm visualizing it to you because we're in the same room. But for example, I remember in the earlier days with the frameworks that I was working on and the feed team. And there wasn't a strict dividing line. We overlapped. We overlapped with each other. So me and the team I was on was primarily responsible for this core framework, but we had latitude to reach into the feed code base and maybe even change their code base in order to implement a framework feature. On the same token, they had latitude, because we had a trust relationship, to go in and propose features and even just do them, right? Now, obviously, we would tend, the core Ent team would tend to change Ent more, and the feed team would tend to change feed more, but there was this kind of like overlapping nature to it. 
And navigating that is both a technical concern as well as a relationship concern and a trust building exercise. So it's just more complicated. And so that's kind of like one dimension that strikes out at me as making it more complicated and difficult to manage and scale a product code base. Another thing I would add to that is about tooling. So whenever you your team hits a certain size of engineers committing to a system, and I mean a system, it's, it's not just one code base, it could be like different services talking to each other. Like you need some degree of tooling to ensure like high quality and that people can, can work somewhat effectively, whether it's a microservice or monolithic architecture. I think you probably need about the same, there's probably some ratio of lines of code of internal tools to like product code. Right, that I think is probably like pretty constant for whether it's microservices or, or monoliths. But I think in in 2019, there's a lot of vendors that'll sell you a lot of great tools to manage a microservices deployment. Um, like all this distributed tracing stuff, like Lightstep, is like is really snazzy. And Facebook had to build a lot of that stuff. Like like the release engineering team had some magic tool that would look at a stack trace for a new bug that would that would show up during a canary and then like attempt to to find the right person to triage that bug to. Whereas in a microservices deployment, like you have an owner's file for that service and you can tri- triage it to the right on call. So it requires a tooling investment. And I think that the tools that you have for monoliths are baked into the frameworks like Ruby on Rails. And I think Ruby on Rails is just not designed to scale past like tens of engineers. And we can dunk on Ruby on Rails for the rest of the interview if you want. But I mean, Twitter is a good example that like tried to scale Ruby on Rails up. I mean, this was years ago, but it's still the same thing. It's like it's dynamically typed. Everything happens at runtime. Like there's all sorts of mix-ins and stuff. And it's very difficult for you to like read the code statically and figure out what's going on. And so I think if the, the open source frameworks were better, like monolithic frameworks were better at scaling to larger teams, we might be in a different situation today. So yeah, I don't know. That's that's kind of my perspective on that. There's a phenomenon that you call Facebook Moore's Law, which is essentially the idea that the product engineers at Facebook, they're not given quotas, they're not given constraints, really, on, on the resources that they can consume. And they can kind of go hog wild consuming resources. I mean, assuming that they actually need those resources or can, are making good use of them. And then the infrastructure team just kind of figures it out. It figures out how to scale in response to that. And maybe this is this is like less you know applicable now because I'm sure the Facebook infrastructure team is is quite well scaled. But or maybe not. I don't know. But at least this was true when you were there. Can you tell me more about the Facebook Moore's law? So that isn't a term that people really talk about. But as I was thinking it through, so I listened to Raylene's interview, and she was talking about how every engineering all hands, they would hear, hey, our infrastructure got faster, it got cheaper, um, it got easier to use. And she talked about how that's a pretty rare thing at a tech company. And I started thinking about the implications of that. And at Facebook, like we would roll out pretty major features, and we wouldn't have a separate quota for those features. Like most at most tech companies, if you want to go write hundreds of gigabytes or terabytes of, of data into some database tier, um, you have to go file an infrastructure ticket, make sure there's enough capacity, make sure there's a on-call registered and all sorts of stuff like that. And as a product engineer at Facebook, at least in that era, 
never, I think I talked to an infrastructure team once and it was like, I had rolled this thing to production for 1% and they said, they just sent me an email. They're like, Hey, like, do you know how big this will be? And I said, Oh, it's, you know, it's a, it's about going to be this big. And like, that was the extent of it. And I wasn't blocked on that, that conversation at all. And so I attribute that to, again, like people like Keith Adams and, and other people on the, on the infrastructure team, like, like stuff would just get faster and cheaper. I don't actually know how infrastructure did it. I think it would be really interesting to talk to more of those, those folks and see if this was like an intentional relationship that they wanted to have with product engineering, where it's like your job is to just make the infrastructure totally transparent to the product engineering team and let them iterate without worrying about it. Um, but it worked really well. I have a lot to say about this. First of all, I likewise took it for granted while I was a product engineer at Facebook. I didn't realize how special that dynamic was. And I often, not often, but I do have sometimes some guilt about taking that for granted and just like being like, of course that's how it works. No, that's not of course how it works. It, and it was definitely an explicit decision by the infrastructure teams in order to operate in that way. And they did extraordinary, extraordinary work. So this is one of those things where you want to build a technical architecture that appropriately matches the domain of software that you're building. So when we talked about a monolith, we were talking specifically about application code. The infrastructure team builds hundreds of services that have very well-prescribed APIs and contracts that do go over a process boundary. So they very appropriately have their own teams that execute and there is strict ownership, right? Or much stricter ownership, I should say. So let's make a very concrete example of what he's talking about, what Pete's talking about with Facebook Moore's Law. Essentially, like every quarter, you would read some update from the hip hop HHVM team that would be like, yeah, we implemented such and such a feature. And so we had a goal of reducing the CPU load across our entire server fleet by 8%, and we actually did it by 10%. And you're just like, that sounds like a lot. And then it would keep on happening every single quarter. And so that's what he means by Moore's Law, where it would compound quarter after quarter to quarter, and the infrastructure teams would just be delivering this stuff. And you're, it's just like, it's incredible to work on. And then they just made a commitment that they built these centralized pieces of infrastructure that served the product engineers. And the product engineers could just go and do their worst and they would figure it out. And it was a remarkable dynamic. And just, you know, the scale numbers are insane. You know, like we had this system called Tau that was effectively a distributed key value store, plus we had, an, it, it was what stored our application data and the graph of data in our system. And the scaling requirements of that was crazy. I remember onboarding the, or talking to the Parse team about when they were relatively new to the company and I was explaining Tau and they're, at some point they're like, wait, what is the QPS of this thing? And then I knew that at that point, and it was like, yeah, it's 2 billion queries per second in the worldwide fleet. And it's probably like, 5x that now. And it just like, we just kind of took that for granted, which is fairly crazy if you think about it. So bravo to the infrastructure team. And let me reemphasize that they do have a services architecture and it's appropriate for their domain. But I want to put an asterisk on that. The reason they have a services architecture is for basically like resource isolation, independent scaling, 
error boundary, stuff like that. They don't have a microservices architecture or services architecture because they don't want to talk to each other or work on each other's code base. Like it's still a services architecture in a mono repo. And it's one code base, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's one one code base. There's actually a separate mono repo for that, but uh, but it's it's still the same style of working, but it is deployed deployed independently. One thing I was always curious about, and I don't really have the answer for this, is at Facebook, if you look at hip hop, right? So Moving from Apache PHP or um, like open source Zen PHP to hip hop, there were certain features that were very difficult, if not impossible, to implement in hip hop PHP. And as a product engineer, like I don't ever really remember being asked to refactor my code base because of someone else's infrastructural change. And I think what you will find in a lot of other companies, and I think you, you had a podcast with some somebody from Google, and it seems like the same thing at Google, where it's like, hey, I'm refactoring my code, I'm deprecating some feature, and then you go to all the customers of that feature and you ask them to refactor and get on the new API. That like literally never happened at Facebook. Like it was all just done for me. Is that that your read as well? Yeah, the HPHP team definitely refactored the product code base itself in order to implement their features. But but was was that like a thing that was consistent across all the different pieces of infrastructure or like, was that like a Facebook cultural norm or was that just something that didn't happen that often? I think so. The other thing you would do is do it kind of in sequence where you would come up with a higher level abstraction and then ensure that that stacked well with the future direction of the underlying infrastructure. So as engineers migrated to that new thing, like it would naturally be utilized and then presumably the new underlying infrastructure would deliver a lot of value on some dimension, therefore increasing the incentive to adopt that new centralized abstraction. So by working in concert with the input teams, you can kind of like accelerate an adoption path. So by the way, at, at Google, I think what Sierra referenced in that interview with her was actually that she was giving the example of updating like a gRPC or a protobuf client or compiler or something. And she said that actually, if you do that, you actually go to all the customers and you you refactor it for them. In the monorepo, yeah. in, in the monorepo environment, you actually do it for them. Google has a monorepo right. and the amount I mean, you did an episode on it. Like the amount of investment they put into that thing right. is bananas. Like totally bananas. Did you listen to Sierra's podcast? No. It's good. <laughs> I've heard a talk publicly. I it actually I was at a conference and someone from Google gave like an hour long presentation about their monorepo technology before I went on stage, and I was like, the thing I'm talking about is not nearly as cool as that. <laughs> <I said. laughs> yeah, Basil's pretty good too. Not to go down that route too deeply, but do you guys have perspective for like, is it possible to get the necessary tooling to move the industry in the direction of, of monorepos? I believe so. So to me, the awkward stage of monorepo management is this kind of middle phase where you've scaled enough where a monorepo starts to reach its edges of either performance or some lack of other tooling, and you're some medium-sized company, and in order to make the monorepo work, you're gonna have to invest a significant amount of tooling. And if you're unwilling to do that, then for understandable reasons in the context of your business, then the only option is to break it apart. So I think it's worth kind of calling that out. And maybe there is a missing tools company out there that supports that kind of 
middle ground. But the value of that has to be proven, right? Meaning that you know people aren't going to adopt that way unless like they believe it's valuable. So there's a chicken and the egg problem there. I think it'd be a challenging business to build, actually. So let's revisit this question of Facebook's engineering culture relative to other engineering cultures. What could Facebook learn or what do you see as valuable in other mainstream large engineering cultures relative to Facebook? When we contrast Facebook with the Google culture, the Amazon culture, the Apple culture, what could Facebook learn from these other organizations? The thing that comes to mind for me, especially in the modern context where the we've reached the limits of scaling companies in one geographic location, partially because of the particularities of the Bay Area and housing prices and geographic constraints even, is that I don't think Facebook as much had a culture of writing things down as much as other companies. So in order to effectively work at multiple geography scale well, I think one of the ways you can do that is have a culture of writing things down so that you write down all decisions, you write down why they were made, the trade-offs, so that everyone feels included in that decision-making process. And I think that Facebook has tried to do that as time has gone on, but it's still like, that was not the way it worked in its formative years. So I think that scaling Facebook geographically has been a challenge. You know, We definitely have teams in the different offices that interface very well. They typically do so across API boundaries where they can interface well in a way where they don't have to necessarily broadcast their decision-making processes as much. But I think that other companies do that well and serves them well and gives them a lot of flexibility in terms of having remote work or many more distributed geographies. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I would say Facebook like almost actively fought that for a long time. Like Zuck for a long time refused to open an SF office because he wanted everyone co-located for the very good reason that co-located people generally work better and share information better, more effectively than people that are remote. And if you want to be remote, you have to really work at it. Uh, I definitely think that the lack of writing things down both kind of hurts being able to collaborate between offices and also it, it's a little bit more difficult or it's it's way more difficult to understand the historical context of stuff. So when I came to Twitter, I was shocked at how good Twitter was at this stuff. So almost every meeting would have an agenda, a shared Google Doc, commenting back and forth on the Google Doc. The default when anyone walks into a meeting room is to turn on Google Hangouts, which is really cool. Um, and then there's technical design documents for everything. And for me, I'm, I'm you know, I, I have very mixed feelings about these large detail technical design documents because the Facebooker in me says, listen, like we could have implemented this thing by the time the technical design spec was written and approved. At the same time, I can just sit on my laptop and read the entire history of all of Twitter's architectural decisions because they're all in one place, easily digestible with the primary source discussion in there. So that is something, I think there's some middle ground there that, that Facebook could learn from. And maybe they have, I don't, I don't know, that seems like they may have done this since, but. Yeah, I'm, I was there later than you were. So there's definitely been investments in the remote aspect and working, you know, Facebook has a few primary engineering centers, New York, Seattle, Menlo, now San Francisco, now that's growing, and London. So it's not massively remote, but there are distributed geographies with time zone issues. The amount 
of internal investment in the scheduling and the video conferencing software is extraordinary. So Facebook does not use Google Hangouts. Facebook has its own proprietary stack, and I believe proprietary hardware now for only its internal usage. Totally wild. The scheduling tool that we used was very good. You could like configure, select attendees, select like, you know, I want every other week here, and then you would select it and it would be a constraint solver and be like, okay, we can choose this room and this geo, this room and this geo, and then it would align all the schedules and then it would figure out like, this works except for this one outlier case where there's one meeting that overlaps six weeks out. So like you have to move that one and there's like a tooling flow to do that. So what I was talking about in terms of writing things down and the remote stuff was in terms of the initial culture formation rather than the investment in internal tools. It's it's now recognized as an issue that requires significant investment. So there's massive resources behind the tooling around that. But, you know, and I think at this juncture, you know, I've been gone for the company for a couple, two and a half years. Pete, what, five or something? Four. Four? So... This would be like something where someone who is actually there, maybe who's working from London, could you know speak to the challenges of doing that. So, and the more, actually, I think it was, I think you're right. I think it is five now. The more I do manager stuff, the more that I realize that like teams and people, like there's a lot of analogies to like distributed systems. And so, if you think like Facebook's approach to remote work historically was kind of like vertical scaling or vertical sharding. So if you have a, like for the engineers listening, like if you have, like you start out your app with one big SQL database that holds everything or one big whatever database that holds everything. And eventually, like the first bottleneck that you hit is gonna be on like one table or two tables for one specific application. And like, rather than build out this big, infinitely scalable, horizontally sharded thing, you basically will normally like take out that one table and move it to a separate database server because it's, it's really easy to do and then you can kind of scale that one independently vertically, right? Only when you get to hyperscale and you really need to systemically solve it, do you move to a horizontally sharded model where you, you know, have a fleet of database servers and all tables are kind of striped across every every node. And Facebook's approach to remote work, like Facebook had remote offices for a long time, but it was that vertically sharded model where like the Seattle team would be working on, I think it was like there's some like monetization thing. And like the Seattle office was like basically dominated by monetization work. Um, in the London office, I forgot what they focused on, but they focused on something in, in, in particular. And like that works for a while, but when your end organization is like Facebook and it's like predicated on the idea that you can move people around really easily and it's, and it's a little bit chaotic and really agile, you need to be able to like, fi in, in my view anyway, figure out how you can have people in London collaborating with people in San Francisco and Seattle on the same project. Otherwise, it's not going not gonna to scale. Doing these interviews and listening to the interviews with other people, final reflections on downsides of the Facebook engineering culture. Things that people listening to this should take away, and you know they're hearing lots of great things about Facebook engineering. What's the bear case? Well, to summarize the the bear case, I think you need to think about how like what the biases are in your organization, and like make sure that they're the right ones. And if they're not, actively work to to create kind of new incentives to bias the organization the right way. Facebook is mostly a large scale consumer application that is written on a stack that is fast and easy to deploy. And so 
the the nature of that business is there's lots and lots of competitors and the cost of an error tends to be pretty low relative to some other stuff. And so you want to create an engineering organization and a set of values and a culture that biases towards rapid iteration and moving quickly. There are lots of companies that don't fit into that or aren't biased in that direction or don't naturally need to move in that direction. I think that we all should strive to, to iterate as quickly as possible, but sometimes your problem as a company is not, we're not moving fast enough, it's our quality is too low. So you need to like really look critically at your, your company and say, are we biasing towards being too slow or are we biasing towards lower quality? And then set up some stuff to combat that bias. And in my view, as a company gets large, the louder and more assert assertive voices in the room tend to be the ones telling you all the risks and not all the rewards, because the risks are easier to articulate and the rewards are, are usually unknowns. And so I think one of the takeaways from Facebook is that if you try to change the math on that a little bit, say, hey, listen, like, what if we prioritize moving faster? Like, what would we need to do in order to move that direction? There are things from the Facebook playbook that you can take to do that, but I don't think you want to take all of it. I don't think that the Facebook playbook will work as is for, for everybody. So I guess I'll have a closing thought, which isn't directly answering your question, but yeah. more of kind of, a, you know, like summing up what we're talking about during the series a bit. The one thing I would say is a Pete and I, and I think the other people you've energy and uh, interviewed get very excited and wrapped up in what they're talking about. And then it ends up being kind of a rah, rah, you know, pro Facebook fest. But when you step back and think about it in a more kind of controlled manner, what I would say, the prime lesson I've learned from this, as well as talking to other people and getting a wider angle lens on the industry, is that there's no best engineering culture. There is a set of trade-offs that you make, and you design the culture for the domain of the problem that you're trying to solve, as Pete said. So this series is not about saying that you should take every single piece of propaganda that we've uttered swallow it hook, line, and sinker, and then apply it directly to your engineering organization. The point of this series is that we think we're presenting a different set of costs and benefits, which is not frequently articulated in the industry and should be considered when you're designing your engineering culture to target an organization. So, you know, we've gone through this quite a bit. There's clear costs and benefits where you kind of can, you can get increased velocity, but at the cost of chaos, which I actually think can is not actually a technical downside, but an organizational kind of psychology downside. I don't think everyone would be successful as an individual executing with that environment, and it can be stressful, just, just as an example. So, and as Pete said earlier, you know, we're, where things go wrong usually is people take their previous dogma, attribute that to their success and then apply it to a different domain where it doesn't fit, right? I think Facebook does this. I think Apple does this for sure when Apple uses its kind of founding mythology in high quality client software and applies it to distributed systems and cloud services and it just doesn't work as well. So instead of just blindly taking the cultural values of a particular organization, like survey them and then think about what went right and what went wrong, and then design your new culture, design for your target domain. And then also keep in mind that, you know, with the Facebook thing, maybe some of the reasons that we think Facebook was successful was in fact not why it was. 
And in fact, the dominant thing was that the business was growing and so successful that we could tolerate and absorb these massive mistakes. And I think that's always, you know, good to keep in mind. Yeah, one other thing I would just add is a lot of the things that Facebook did are package deals, I want to say. So if you don't have really, really, really good internal tools and you don't really invest in that, you can't really move people around teams super flexibly. And so if you take one of these practices and apply it to your company, you move people around all the time, but you're unwilling to allocate time and resources to building out good internal tools, it's not gonna work. You know, and there's, if you take a look at a lot of these practices that sound crazy, when you view them in the context of all these other things that kind of sprung up around it, it starts to make sense. So I think Facebook was really good at growing this culture of engineering and the tooling and infrastructure around it to support it. Um, and it might be difficult to replicate that at a, another place. Okay, Nick and Pete, thanks for coming back on the show, you guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks.